Indeed, O oh God, our celebration today is about a risen Savior. It is about the one who has conquered the grave for his people, who has gone to a cross representing them, and then had victory over death for on their behalf. And so we stand here today as men and women who have been crucified with Christ, resurrected with Christ, and now indeed are seated with Christ because our new residence is in Christ. We are people who are a part of this great redemptive work, having laid hold of it with a hand of faith. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as we gather together today, that your people might find renewed hope and vigor for a life of service to the King of Kings. And I pray, Father, for those who visit with us this morning, might they see among us something that is alive, something that is real, something that is desirable, and that in the end, all of us might be brought to the place where we find worship, our greatest desire, our greatest love. Our Father, we do pray for the world. She is in turmoil. There is conflagration all around us. And we pray, O oh God, that somehow glory will be gotten by you as solutions are sought and prayerfully found. We pray, O oh God, for our president and pray that you will give him wisdom as so many things press in upon him just now. O oh God, guard our country. Might she be a stalwart of the faith. Remind this nation that she is one nation under God. That we are a people totally and completely dependent upon the God of our, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, O oh God, I pray for your people. They bring hurts of various shapes and sizes into this room this morning. And I pray... That being with your people around your word will stimulate them to greater heights of holiness and pleasure in Jesus Christ. Except our gifts, compared to what's left in our checking accounts, Father, they're small. But use them for one purpose and one purpose only. That being the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the first letter of Peter. It's kind of hard to find. It's uh, towards the back of the New Testament. Of course, it's right next to 2 Peter, which is right next to 1 John. So if you can find 1 Peter, you follow as I read the opening five verses of 1 Peter chapter 1 at verse 1. 1 Peter 1. At verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever and ever. In Greek mythology, uh, of course, the centerpiece of Greek mythology is a pantheon of Greek gods. The, uh, the number one top dog chief superior god in the, the Greek pantheon was a god by the name of Zeus. And there's a story that's told about Zeus, about a man that he created, uh, who uh, had received from one of the other gods in the Greek pantheon uh, a vast array of powers. And, and Zeus was somewhat concerned that this man of his would use those powers to take over his position. And so he, he schemed this vengeful plot to try and thwart this man from ever using those powers to take his spot. And his, uh, his plot included the creation of a beautiful woman. Her name was Pandora. And Pandora was given to the man, and uh, Pandora was given, and an ornate, beautiful, bejeweled box. With the instructions, of course, that the box was never to be opened. She was never to lift the lid and look inside. And to make the story a, a bit shorter, and uh, as you might well anticipate, curiosity kills the cat. And so she lifts the lid to look inside, and when she does, all of the good things inside escape out of the box and back into the heavens. Things like generosity and kindness and goodness and purity. And before she could get the lid back on top of the box, the only thing that had been trapped inside was hope. What's a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing that she got that to that top, back on side the box. What would we do without hope? One Christian writer said a man can live about 40 days without food and about um, three days without water. About eight minutes without air. But without hope, he can only live a matter of seconds. Take wealth away from a man and you, and you hinder him. Take his purpose away and you, you slow him down, but, but take away his hope and you stop him altogether. There, uh, we can live uh, without wealth and, and without purpose, but we cannot live without hope. There's been a very interesting uh, series of studies over the years, a very interesting series of studies that have been done, um, uh, research projects and uh, psychological investigations uh, concerning uh, a particular issue. And the, all of these, these studies unite on, on one conclusion. And that conclusion is that hope and survival are inseparably connected. One of those studies, which is called the Broken Heart Study, is a study about 4,500 widowers within six months of their wives' death. And it was conducted by a Dr. Douglas Colligan, who um, 
discovered that the mortality rate for those men who had lost their wives is some 40% higher when compared as compared to other men the same age. In that same study, Dr. Culligan tells a story uh, that was told him by a Major Harold Kushner, who was a POW in the Vietnam War. And when he arrived at the POW camp, there was a young 24-year-old Marine that was already there and who had already been there for two years. And this Marine had, had survived prison or, or camp life fairly well. And one of the reasons that he had uh, survived so well is that the camp commander of the Viet Cong had told him that if he behaved and cooperated, that he would be released. And since that had been done before, uh, the, the, the man believed him, and so he became the model POW. But as time passed, he realized that his captors had lied to him. And when the full realization of that lie uh, sunk in on this young Marine, he became a zombie. He refused to eat. He refused to work. He uh, refused any efforts at encouragement. He curled up on a cot in a fetal position, sucking his thumb, and in a matter of days was dead. Because as you know, hope and survival are inseparably connected, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I've not been to any POW camps, and I've not done massive research, but uh, I have been a pastor almost 27 years. And I have lived through, with alongside you, hurts and losses of of various shapes and sizes, which has uh, forced me to conclude that those research projects are right, that hope and and survival are inseparably inseparably connected. You know, I've never claimed to be a good counselor. I've said that on numerous occasions from behind this pulpit. I don't claim to be a good counselor now, but in some occasions you don't have to be a good counselor. All you have to do is try and instill in people a bit of hope. I have seen the hope chest of a young bride-to-be turn into a nightmare in a matter of months. I have watched as people received health reports of unexpected bad health, situations, crises that could crush the human will. I've received phone calls in the middle of the night where the identity of the phone caller was impossible to detect because of the intensity of the sobs. And every time I'm in a situation like that, ladies and gentlemen, I always, I always have a couple of verses that I like to use. And one of them is, is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 that says this. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but afterwards... Afterwards, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And ladies and gentlemen, that word afterwards, it's a word of hope. There's another text in Psalm 27 where David says, I would have despaired unless I believed I would have seen the goodness of God. Afterwards, unless, they're just words of hope, ladies and gentlemen, And I I, I share those texts because I'm trying to instill hope. Because, as you know, hope and survival are inseparably connected. 
Years ago, I did this, uh, a lot of work, a lot of study on, uh, it was wasted, but I, I did the study anyway, on the two words that are translated hope. There's a Greek word, elpis, that would not be Elvis, that would be elpis. Uh, the Greek word elpis is translated hope, and the, the Hebrew word batak is translated hope. And I did all this word study and trying to discover the etymology and the history of the words, and, and I came up with all these texts and insights and verses and cross-references, etc., and it was, it was very uh, uh, profitable study, but after I had done it all, I had all this work in front of me, and I, and I concluded that I really didn't need to share it with you. Because you already agree. You know as well as I that hope and survival are inseparably connected. There is, um, in our day, ladies and gentlemen, no shortage of prophets of doom. There are demographers who give evidence that the exponential growth of the world's population is such that it's going to put such a strain on the world's food supply and, and other resources that we're going to be reduced to the barest subsistence levels. That is, if we survive at all. There are ecologists who point out that we are destroying the ozone level at such a rate, the ozone level that protects us from the harmful rays that produce cancer, that we are destroying the ozone ozone layer at such a rate that it's only a matter of time before massive doses of of infrared and ultraviolet-like bombard us, rendering survival on this planet utterly impossible. There are other ecologists that point to the fact that we're polluting the oceans at such a rate that we are not only destroying certain forms of oceanic life, but we're destroying plankton. And if you didn't know it, I didn't, but uh, if you didn't know, plankton is the stuff that creates oxygen. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I, I like oxygen. There are political scientists whose study of the escalation of the arms race leads them to predict that it's only a matter of time before there is some nuclear holocaust. And if you happen to spend any time over the weekend watching CNN, you're almost willing to agree with them. There are criminologists that tell us that, or that that predict that there's going to be a complete breakdown of law and order in the West Returning us to barbarism at worst and a new dark age at best. Teenagers. Teenagers, ladies and gentlemen, as a group have basically lost hope. There was a study that was conducted uh, right uh, 30 days or so after 9-11. And uh, the response was unbelievable. I forget the exact number, but it was in the 70s or 80s about uh, teenagers who believe that some kind of... um, uh, economic collapse or some kind of terrorist attack is going to mar their futures, making them or ruining whatever future they might have had. Consequently, did you know this? That the number two reason or cause for death among teenagers today is suicide. The number one, of course, is car accidents. But um, teenagers know too, or know, as, know like we do, that without hope, survival is, is iffy. 
Ours is a world, ladies and gentlemen, that longs to be given something in which they might pin their hopes. Because they know as well as we that hope and survival are inseparably connected. And there is, the, in the non-Christian world, a view of the future that is so ominous that their only solution is to live for today, grab whatever they can grab out of life for today, because the future doesn't look very bright at all. Fear they know. Hope they've lost. In the book of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that the natural man is without hope. In Greek thought, hell was the place where there was no hope. And if that's true, ladies and gentlemen, existence on this planet is becoming more and more hellish, is it not? Webster defines hope as the desire with expectation of fulfillment. To hope is to anticipate, ladies and gentlemen, but it's more than some kind of wishful thinking or daydreaming. It's possessing within ourselves an expectation that someday there will be the fulfillment of our greatest longings and desires. That our desires will one day become a reality. Hope is the stuff that keeps us looking off to the future. It's always standing on its tiptoes. Hope is the stuff, ladies and gentlemen, that keeps us going. It makes a dismal today bearable because it promises a brighter tomorrow. And without hope, ladies and gentlemen, something within all of us dies. Now, I want you to listen once again to the word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Gang, hope, <coughs> hope is a, is a confidence, a confidence in the future. A confidence that has been engendered by the literal, bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It was that, ladies and gentlemen, that fact, that resurrection that catapulted the early church into the streets. They took to the world a message of hope that God would one day raise the dead. And that there was a future life beyond the grave. And to prove it, they pointed to an empty tomb. And then they quoted the words of the one who had once been in that tomb, who said, because I live, yet you shall live also. Folks, that's one truth that is, it has unbelievable ramifications for us as we live out our lives today. Let me, let me just illustrate one of them. I stand before you this morning, a saved man. I'm a saved man not because I'm good. You know that. I'm a saved man because God is good. My sin and my shame and my guilt has been atoned for not by me, but by Jesus Christ. And yet I, I am conscious that there is something more, something more than this to be had. There is a salvation in a larger sense, a fuller sense, that I cannot fully appreciate just now. 
Because I, along with the rest of the creation, says Paul, groan and suffer the pangs of childbirth. We who have been born of the Spirit, we are the first fruits of the Spirit, nevertheless groan within ourselves, waiting a fuller something, a fuller glory, not seen as yet. And yet that longing remains dormant. It, became, it remains manageable until there's some enormous loss or hurt or, or pain. And then that longing raises its ugly head and we long for that something else. So in those times, ladies and gentlemen, in those times where the life has rocked us at the core of our being, what is it that undergirds you? Well, I can tell you what it is for me. It is the hope that is engendered by this inheritance, mentioned in 1 Peter 1, that awaits us. And the evidence that is left behind that that inheritance awaits us is the physical, literal, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because I know the who. I can endure the what without knowing the why. (laughs) June the 6th, 1944. A day that lives in infamy, ladies and gentlemen. You know what day that was? It even even has a name for it. It's called D-Day. It was that crucial day when the Allied forces crossed the English Channel and landed on the beaches of Normandy. And launched what was the decisive battle in World War II. The German army had arrayed itself all up and down the French coast, not knowing exactly where the Allies were going to land, in hopes that they could, that they could repel the attack and push the Allies back into the sea. The German army knew that whichever side was victorious on that day would eventually end the war, or win the war. The, uh, the Allies understood that the, that the whole future of Europe and the future of the entire world rested on the outcome of that battle in the next 24 hours. And every student of history under, knows and understands that the, that the, the Allies were, uh, prevailed that day and established a beachhead on the co- coast of France from which they moved east to reclaim all of France and Europe until they arrived ultimately at Berlin. But after D-Day, ladies and gentlemen, there were still many months of fighting and loss and bloodshed that would come after that great victory on D-Day. The the painful struggles that followed the victory on the beaches of Normandy would cost thousands of lives. There would be more bombing, more destruction after D-Day than before D-Day. However, from D-Day onward, there was never a question in anyone's mind as to who would ultimately win that war. And it was for that reason that General Rommel, the desert fox, joined in an attempt to assassinate Hitler because he knew that the war had been lost on the coast of France and that it was only a matter of time before the entire Third Reich would fall. 
The Allies struggle and experience numerous setbacks on their way to Berlin, the most terrific of which, of course, was the Battle of the Bulge. But they never lost sight of the fact that victory would ultimately be theirs. And in their most downcast moments, they were aware that it was only a matter of time before their, their, their enemy would have to give up. The decisive battle was fought at D-Day. And that enabled them to hope with a hope that transcends some kind of wishful thinking. Uh, even in the midst of their, the worst of the losses, it was the victory at D-Day that kept them longing for another day that, that in, inevitably awaited them. And that was V-Day. Gang, we Christians must recognize that we too are living between D-Day and V-Day. God's D-Day was 2,000 years ago on a hill called Calvary. There, the God who had invaded his lost creation through Jesus Christ confronted the awesome powers of darkness in the most crucial battle in cosmic history. And when that terrible Friday had ended, it seemed as if the demonic forces had won and the Prince of Glory had lost and been locked into some borrowed tomb. But that was Friday. Three days later, Jesus rolled away that stone to that tomb and stepped out of that, rolled away that stone and stepped out of the tomb as Christus Victor. He had brought the powers of darkness to nothing. And while the decisive battle was fought and won on God's D-Day, ladies and gentlemen, you and I must recognize that V-Day has not yet come. His V-Day is the day when a trumpet will sound and ultimate victory will be declared the V-Day when Satan will be bound and cast into a lake of fire. V-Day, ladies and gentlemen, is the, when the Lord returns and becomes the acknowledged King of His creation. And our Lord shall reign where'er the sun His successive journeys do run. Our V-Day, ladies and gentlemen, is when Jesus Christ returns and every knee shall bow. And every tongue shall confess that He is Lord of all. We live in between, ladies and gentlemen. God's D-Day and a V-Day that awaits us. There's a story that, that, that comes out of World War II about a young soldier that was wounded, wounded very seriously on, on, a, on a good Friday. And uh, he lay in a battlefield about to die. And um, he was rescued three days later on an Easter Sunday morning. And when uh, he was asked, how is it that he survived such horrible wounds without any medical attention? His reply was this. I can stand anything as long as I know Easter is coming. Ladies and gentlemen, there have been in the church expressions of that hope uh, in many various ways. But one of the most glorious is a piece of music. A piece of music that was written by, by Handel, Handel's Messiah. And you know that, that the, 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 the most renowned piece in that Messiah was a piece called the Hallelujah Chorus. 
in which Handel saw the return and the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ the King. Now I want you to hear that piece of music this morning. And I want you to know that customarily, and by the way, I'm not finished. After they're finished, I'm going to come back with one observation and a story and then we're we're done. But I want you to hear this piece of music. And I think the words are going to be on the screen because it's all about this coming V-Day, ladies and gentlemen. Now, customarily, the people of God have stood every time the Hallelujah Chorus was sung. It's not being sung, but it is being played. Won't you stand with me as we hear this glorious description of V-Day?
seated. There's one observation and one story, and I'm finished. First of all, ladies and gentlemen, let me read you from 1 John chapter 3, where we find these words. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as it is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, hope is the stuff that keeps us persevering. Hope is the stuff that gives us comfort in pain. Hope is the stuff that gives us a, a, a hope of a brighter future in tomorrow. But hope is also the stuff that's supposed to change our lives. We are told by this text that if we have this hope, that we purify ourselves as he is pure. That is supposed to be one of the practical outworkings of the hope that you and I share in Jesus Christ. Now the story. And the story, ladies and gentlemen, is not mine. In fact, it was first told, oh gosh, in the early 80s. But it was so famous a story that they wrote a book about this story. It was first told by a, a, a sociologist, a, a guy by the name of Tony Campolo. He teaches sociology in a small Christian school in Pennsylvania. But he worships in a church, an all-black church in West Philadelphia. And he tells the story about when preachers in his church are preaching and when they're good, the, uh, the deacons who sit right underneath the pulpit will encourage the preacher by saying, Preach, brother, preach. Which is like saying sick him to a bulldog. But uh, the, the ladies have a different way of, of kind of encouraging the preacher. And so they'll sit back in their, in their pews and they'll kind of sway. And they, they raise one hand and kind of wave a hand and say, well, well, well. He said, and that's not all. He said, in our church, if a preacher is really good, if he's really on, people in the congregation will be, begin to preach. They'll begin to shout. They'll say, keep going, brother, keep going. Which is something that would never happen in a white congregation. A white congregation is tapping their watch and saying, could somebody possibly shut him up? But Tony says, uh, on this particular Good Friday, a series, a, a special service had been planned where there was going to be seven preachers back to back. Can you imagine? Seven black preachers back to back on Good Friday. That was an all day affair, ladies and gentlemen. But Tony was asked to preach in those seven preachers, and he was number six. And he said, when I was preaching that day, he said, I have to tell you, I was on. And the people began to get into what I was saying, and the more they got into it, the better I got. And the better I got, the more they got into it. He said the place was rocking and jumping, and, and they were shouting at him. And, and he said, when he finally got three, he said the place blew up. He said it was absolutely thrilling to hear all of these cries and shouts of joy and hallelujahs all over the room. So he returned to his chair and he sat next to his pastor and his pastor kind of looked at him and grinned and grabbed him by the knee and squeezed his knee and said, you did all right, boy. So he said, I didn't like being called a boy. But he looked at him and he said, um, you think you can top that? And this uh, pastor of his looked at him and he says, son, you just sit back and watch because I'm going to do you in. Tony said, I didn't think anybody could do me in on that day because I had been so good. But, he said, I had to admit, 
that indeed my pastor did me in. And the remarkable thing was he did it with the repetition of one sentence for an hour and a half. It was basically one sentence for an hour and a half. And the sentence was, it's Friday, but Sunday's are coming. He said when he started his sermon, he started rather softly and he said, it's Friday. Friday and my Jesus is gone. Dead. Dead on the tree. Gone. He is no more. But it's only Friday. Sundays are coming. One of the deacons in the back yelled, preach, brother, preach. It's kind of all the encouragement this, this dear brother needed. And he came out louder the second time. And he said, it was Friday. Mary is crying her eyes out. And the disciples are running in every which direction like sheep without a shepherd. But that's because it was only Friday. Sundays are coming. People in the congregation began to pick up what was going on and begin to get into it with them and understand the message. And the women were kind of waving their hands and beginning to call out kind of softly, well, well. And somebody in the back said, keep going, keep going. And indeed, he kept going, ladies and gentlemen. He picked up the volume still more and shouted, it was Friday. And the cynics were looking around thinking, as things have been, they forevermore shall be. Nobody's going to change anything now. But that's because the cynics didn't know it was only Friday. But Sunday was a coming. Because somebody said, preach, brother, preach. And he said, it was Friday. And on Friday, the forces that oppress the poor and make them to suffer and to keep them in a hopeless situation. They thought they were in, in charge and calling the shots. But that's because it was only Friday. Sunday's a coming. The Pharisees. Pharisees walking up and down the road, they're laughing and they're poking each other in the ribs with their elbows, thinking that they had finally done away with their greatest enemy. But that was because it was only Friday. But Sundays are coming. Pilate, Pilate thought he had washed his hands of a very difficult problem. But that was because it was only Friday. Sunday was the coming. The Roman soldiers were prancing through the streets with all their, their armor just a glimmering. Thinking that they were the ones who were the big shots. But that was because it was only Friday. Sundays are coming. Satan was out in the streets dancing a jig. But that's because it was only Friday. Sunday was a coming. And Tony said for an hour, for an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and 30 minutes. He kept coming with this again and again and again. Same sentence. It's Friday. Sundays are coming. It's Friday. But Sundays are coming. He said after an hour and a half of that, he said the whole congregation was absolutely exhausted. He said we didn't think, I didn't think we could stand another, another sentence. And as he came to the, to the end of his, of his sermon, the, the pastor stepped out from behind the pulpit. He stepped into the center of the, of the stage. And with his arms stretched out to heaven and his eyes transfixed on heaven, he shouted at the top of his lungs. It's Friday! And as if orchestrated to do so, the congregation responded in unison. But Sundays are coming! That, ladies and gentlemen, is our hope. 
That, ladies and gentlemen, is the essence of our theology. That is our good news that we have to take to the world. To tell them that though they're depressed economically or socially or physically or professionally, it's only Friday. But Sunday's coming. Ladies and gentlemen, we're the ones. We're the ones with the good news. And the good news is, it's only Friday. May we pray. Our Father and our God, remind your people today that though this is a world that loves to subtract from our hope, it is a world that longs to see us live hopelessly, that we are a people who have consummate hope, that our hope can never be taken away from people who know the risen Christ, and that we are a people who can look forward to the future because Jesus Christ has gone before us and we are His people. And we are the people that have a good message to tell, one about consummate hope. Remind your people, O oh God, that it's only D-Day. There is a V-Day that awaits us. And one day soon, Jesus Christ shall reign. Where'er the sun his successive journeys run. Father, we look forward to the day when Christ returns for his people. And I pray, O oh God, for those who have come here today who have not yet met this Savior of ours. Might they see him in all of his resurrected beauty. Might we as a people grab hold of our hope and live it out before them in such a way that they long to have the same hope that we found in Jesus Christ the Lord. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.